Weather's getting better. Yeah. Hey, uh, this morning, Bill Biter taught on the Holy Spirit. And before that, though, he shared some personal experiences of how our culture seems to be kind of rewriting history or at least taking away some of the harsher realities of some of the things that have happened. And uh, today we're going to talk about some kind of misunderstandings and deceptions and that sort of thing that young people experience. Uh, uh, I'm in a series that's about passing faith on to succeeding generations. And uh, at, at times in talking about this, it may seem like I'm demeaning young people. I was a young person once, believe it or not. And I know how confused I was, you know, in my, in my teens, uh, even into my 20s sometimes on some issues. So that's not my intent. They're trying to figure things out, as we all have. And so this is not being critical. But the things that are happening today are significant. Uh, and so one of the, the significant trends that we noted in this series a year ago was the tendency of young people in church to accept Christianity and the Bible as true for them, but not for others. Okay? In other words, they don't want to be seen as excluding others when the world says that exclusion is evil. And while they personally can see the good that Jesus taught for them, they do not want to suggest that others who disagree are wrong. So the problems with this attitude are that it makes one's worldview or one's faith or religion subjective. Therefore, in effect, it denies that there's objective and universal truth for all. It makes faith into kind of a smorgasbord, you know. Uh, while some may stick, choose things that are closer to the Bible, uh, others will pick uh, what they like and ignore any truth that is uncomfortable or inconvenient. Therefore, even though they would not say so, those who take such a view have essentially decided that they are their own gods because they decide how to live on their own terms. If that happens to match something taught in the Bible, well, great. But for many, the Bible is merely a reference book, a self-help guide to which they can go for, for, for suggestions on how to live. Nobody can tell them that anybody else is wrong for choosing another source for their guidance, their lifestyle, their truth. Uh, last, month we, excuse me, last month, we discussed the reliability and the authority of the Bible. And when faced with that, that reliability can make some young people uncomfortable if they think it through, because it implies that the Bible is not a source for guidance upon request, but rather the source of truth, regardless of one's opinion. Yet the culture teaches them that when they choose to believe something, it becomes true for them, simply because they believe it. If you think that through, you'll recognize that as circular reasoning. Okay? So uh, a young person might say, 
that adultery uh, among the married is wrong. But sexual activity among their peers, well, everybody's doing it. It's okay. Uh, they might say it's wrong to lie to a friend. But if that friend comes and asks them for the answers on a test that they missed that, that they've got to make up, it's okay to cheat a little bit. I ran into this in, in, uh, in college when I took a philosophy course on ethics. And, and the professor uh, asked us some questions. And he asked, is it wrong to steal $10,000 from your friend? And everybody goes, well, yeah. Is it wrong to steal a dollar from your friend? Well, yeah. Okay. Is it wrong to st steal $10,000 from a large corporation? Well, you can go to jail for that, yeah. <laughs> Is it wrong to steal a dollar from a large corporation? And not everybody thought it was. Now, I have no inkling as to this professor being a Christian, but what he was trying to do is teach us the importance of consistency in thinking when you make these ethical judgments. Uh, when a young person understands that the Bible is historically accurate, that person must contend with the claim of Christ as to who he said he is. And that can create dissonance for that young person. Culture says that you can choose your own way of salvation, eternity, or whatever you want to believe, but the claim of Christ is that he is the way, the truth, and the light, and that no one comes to the Father, no one can be saved except through Jesus. Amen. That's John 14, 6. So this is a claim of exclusivity. Okay, and the culture does not like the word exclusive because it means somebody in their minds is being left out. Now, that is not the application of the word exclusive that I'm making today. Here, the claim of Christ excludes any path, faith, religion, worldview, means, or road to heaven other than through faith in Christ alone by the grace of God. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus was calling all to enter by the, the narrow or the straight gate or path, but recognizing that few would choose that exclusive path. He doesn't exclude them, rather they choose to exclude themselves. Now this exclusive path does not actually exclude anyone as God desires all sinners to be saved. Now I've put several references on your handout to back that up. Nonetheless, <clears throat> due to the weakening of the concept of absolute truth in today's world, any sense of exclusivity is considered wrong, politically incorrect, or whatever you want to call it, it's frowned upon. Therefore, some young people will struggle with Christ as he describes himself. It's so much easier to conclude that if another person sincerely worships the God of their religion, and I worship the God of the, of the Bible, you know, we're really worshiping all the same God. 
Another way to look at that is to ask the question, does the Bible teach that the gods of other religions besides Christianity are real supernatural beings distinct from and in opposition to the one true God and Father of our Lord Jesus? Now let's back up a little bit. Western society has a very strong concept of free will or choice. All are free to choose how you want to look, what you want to eat, your lifestyle, and your beliefs. And we see this in the First Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits the government from saying you will believe this in our state church or inhibiting the free exercise of your religion. But there's also this aversion to exclusivity. The culture says that no one view should be judged as wrong. I'm okay, you're okay. Perhaps people want to be inclusive because it feels better. There, in fact, the Bible itself tells us to be balanced here, to love and accept others, and to reach out to those in need. In Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. James 2 tells us not to be respecters of the wealthy, to the exclusion of the poor. Luke 14, Jesus admonished his disciples to avoid inviting guests who can repay you. Rather, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And finally, in the author of Romans 12 tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So these and other, other passages make clear that to follow Christ means to love others as we have been loved. Now, we will not agree with all of those people that we are to love. In fact, many of them will be antagonistic toward Christ. So a person young in the faith might reason that because all have freedom of choice and because the Bible tells us to love others, that means we should accept all their choices as valid and true for them. That is a huge leap of logic. Now, with that construct, you know, one might ask how any person who worships sincerely a God by a different name can really be wrong. Perhaps we're all worshiping the same God, just different names and terminology. Uh, what such a question is really implying is that we can all choose our own God, our own religion, worldview, and no one can claim to worship the one true God. However, when freedom of choice with unlimited inclusion, we get the casualty of objective truth. There's a vast gulf between loving an unbeliever on the one hand and accepting their God or gods as just as valid and true as the God of the Bible on the other. 
The Bible teaches that the gods of other religions are not mere names. They're not myths, but are in fact supernatural beings who love to be worshipped and who want to deceive the world and take the place of the true God. Therefore, if you sincerely worship the gods of other religions, you're not worshiping the true one revealed in Christ Jesus. These other gods are competitors, enemies, demonic. They're not God himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. The question he was dealing with there was food offered to idols in another religion and whether Christians should consume that. His explanation was that these sacrifices in the other religions in the first century were not sacrifices to the same God of the Bible, but they were sacrifices to real supernatural beings. He calls them demons who are in opposition to God. What Paul's claiming here is simply a continuation of what God had already revealed in the Old Testament. There's one true God in Israel, Yahweh, who revealed himself by his word to Moses and the prophets. There are other gods of the nations, real supernatural beings that his people were not to worship. In Deuteronomy 29, it tells us, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of other nations. In Joshua 23, it says, You may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So through these and many other Old Testament passages, we see that there are other gods. They, there are other religions, and his people were not to assume that these gods are the same as the God of the Bible, uh, as if all gods are really the same. There's only uh, that all roads lead to heaven. So the question is, who will you and I serve? That's the biggest question of life. Will we serve the one true God, or will we serve other gods? Elijah at, uh, on Mount Carmel put it uh, like this in the great contest between Yahweh and Baal. Uh, he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, then follow him. Just make a decision. Now, were all those sincere Baal worshipers worshiping the true God? Not if you believe the Bible. No. These gods were enemies. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the test of whether any claim of worshiping the true God is valid and true, that claim is none other, that test is none other than Jesus Christ. The final decisive revelation of the true God as revealed as he has revealed himself in history. In 1 John 4 it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So if a spirit says, this is a true religion over here, or this is a true God over here, don't believe him. But instead, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, how are we going to do that? John continues. 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, the real Jesus of history revealed in Scripture is the test of every claim to supernatural reality. Any religion that does not embrace and worship and obey Jesus as God is false. In John 5, Jesus put it this way, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Then when the Pharisees said to Jesus that they trusted and believed in the God of the Old Testament, Jesus responded, not really. Uh, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. And then in 1 John 2, it says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, there are real supernatural beings behind other religions, but they are not the true God. They're contenders, competitors, they're demons, deceivers, and the way to test all such claims to true religion is Jesus Christ. However, it is a very attractive option to pay attention to and follow one who looks and sounds and acts a lot like Jesus, especially if other people of other faiths are similarly attracted to that character. Okay, um, this brings up a specific contemporary depiction of Jesus, a very popular depiction. So popular that I may be stepping on some of your toes right now. So I ask you to listen and consider this as a caution, just a caution. The series, The Chosen, has been praised by many, including many well-known Christian figures. And I think the reason for this is that it is primarily, it is really well produced. Unlike many past attempts to portray the life of Jesus in contemporary film. Uh, the acting is outstanding and the figures are so human. They have frailties, they're genuine, they have blind spots, and so many of us can identify with them, at least what we think they may have been like. And there begins the concerns over this particular series. As I understand, this series is self- or crowd-funded and will be in production for another several years if they have the funding. In order to fill in that much airtime, the producers have had to imagine multiple subplots, okay? And if you've watched it, you've noticed this. In fact, the producers admit that 95% of the series is extra-biblical. In other words, these things do not appear in the Bible, all right? Now, they call it not a documentary of Jesus, but a narrative about Jesus, Whatever the word narrative means, I guess it means you can say, you can make up whatever you want to. They are portraying not the Bible, but what Jesus and his disciples may have been like. Now, you may or may not be able to overlook uh, as artistic license scenes of Jesus seeking help from his disciples to prepare the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know. 
But there, that's in there. You know, Christy and I have watched most of seasons one and two, and we really haven't come to a final judgment about this, but there are some circumstantial things that raise concern for where the series is going to end and its overall effect on unbelievers and new believers. In other words, which Jesus will we see in the end? The Son of God, Jesus, or the historical great teacher called Jesus that most people really, really like. The producer claims good intentions and describes the series as follows, quote, we take Bible stories, we work our way backwards to add the context, to add backstory. Some of it is historical, some of it's cultural, some of it's artistical imagination. All of it is intended to support the character and the intentions of the gospel. Now, to film the series, of course, you got to have backgrounds and props. And season two of The Chosen is filmed in Goshen, Utah, on a set owned by the LDS, Latter-day Saints Church. And the production company is Mormon-owned. Now, this would not be wrong in itself. The Mormons have a reputation for doing things really, really well. I think a year ago at Christmas, I saw some, something on the internet and I, you know, about about Jesus, and I clicked it, and it was about the nativity, and then it showed the wise men showing up when he was a toddler. I was amazed. They got it right. <laughs> and it was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who produced it. When a lot of Christians get it mixed up, he shows up in Bethlehem at the, at the, at the manger. I, you know, you, you wonder sometimes. Um, so, it is possible that the Mormons are willing simply to lease out their, their, their background and props to anyone for an appropriate rent. I think it's also possible that they are desperately trying to be identified with Orthodox Christianity. I can't say what their motivation is. Well, here's a major concern. The producer, a guy named Dallas Jenkins, who, as far as I know, is an evangelical Christian, went on LDS radio and said the following, and I'm quoting, so I can honestly say it's been one of the top three most fascinating and beautiful things about this project. It's been my growing brother and sisterhood with people of the LDS community that I never would have known otherwise, and I learned so much about your faith tradition and realizing, gosh, for all the stuff that maybe we don't see eye to eye on, that all happened, that's all based on stuff that happened after Jesus was here. The stories of Jesus, we do agree on, and we love the same Jesus. That's not something you often hear. So, sometimes it's like, oh, the Mormons, they believe in a different Jesus than we do. No, it's the same. I mean, I'll sink or swim on that statement. I know that's controversial, and I, know, and I don't mind getting criticized at all for the show, and I don't mind being called a blasphemer. I don't like it when my friends are, though. I made it clear, very clear, that if I go down, I'm going down protecting my friends and my brothers and sisters, and so I don't deny we have a lot of theological differences, but we love the same Jesus. Again, which Jesus? I checked with our uh, resident former Mormons, and I am told that Jesus in, in Mormonism is the brother of Satan and that uh, they used uh, the Bible, the King James Bible, but Joseph Smith had to make about 600 revisions to it. 
So my question for Mr. Jenkins is, is he going to portray Jesus as the God-man, the sole way of salvation? Now, we want to be balanced here. Uh, let me be fair. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote from jail in Philippians 1. He said, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, uh, the goodwill ones, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So again, it is possible that the Chosen series may cause some people to talk more about Jesus. However, the producer has had quite a bit of backlash from evangelicals who have pointed out these problems, some even calling him a heretic. The two criteria that he uses for inclusion of storylines in his series are, is it consistent with Scripture, and is it a plausible or possible story as it could have happened? Now, that's a pretty wide berth for 95% of your series. Now, because of the involvement of, other, of different faith groups in his production, uh, the producers had to defend himself, and he takes great pains to say that the chosen is not tied to, quote, any faith, tradition, church, or religion, unquote. Think about that statement. How does one produce a whole series about Jesus Christ without it being tied to the religion of Christianity. Okay? It's a literal impossibility unless your goal is to just present a Jesus with whom all can identify as a great man who taught us to love one another. His deity could be another matter for you to explore on your own. That would be a rather inclusive goal, which no doubt feels good for many, especially if you know Jewish or Catholic or Mormon people that you really, really like, and we all do. Again, is it possible that Jesus might be lifted up? It is possible that Jesus might be lifted up in some way, even in this made-up series. On the other hand, it's also possible that this attractive, easygoing, congenial Jesus with a sense of humor could replace the Jesus of the Bible in the minds of some who find it easier, especially more entertaining, to discover Jesus through an enactment primarily based on fabricated storylines, albeit with some Bible mixed in. The producer, also in defense, makes it clear that the show is not a replacement for the Bible in a separate communication that I found online. Well, that's good that he makes that claim, but how many people who watch this series will ever hear that disclaimer? You know, one of the problems with these storylines is the fact that they are so well produced, so well done. One person was quoted as saying, quote, I feel like I read my Bible in black and white. When I watch The Chosen, I see it in color. Now, when made-up storylines on a screen replace God's Word as the basis for one's faith, we got a problem. Now, my take, this is just me, about Mr. Jenkins, is that 
He truly believes that he can use his obvious talent to present a Jesus that will attract others that might not otherwise take a look. And while he really is gifted, he's done a masterful job of producing a series, he seems a bit to me like our Patrick Mahomes, okay? In other words, sometimes he attempts to do too much. Sometimes, you know, Patrick Mahomes can, in football lingo, thread the needle like nobody. Okay? By that we mean, ladies, uh, you've got two or more defenders around a receiver or coming at you, and he can, one arm angle or another, get it to the receiver. Amazingly. But we watched just last week where he was not able to thread the needle tragically. Yeah. The difference is that nothing that Patrick Mahomes does on the field has any direct effect on anybody's eternity. So, Jenkins seems to be trying to thread the needle of presenting a Jesus acceptable to both Bible-believing Christians and those of other faiths. And in the process, he may, I'm not saying he is, he may be making a Jesus so attractive as a man that we lose sight of him as God, all in the cause of inclusion. Now, if you've watched this, you probably noticed that most of the episodes end with a, some sort of cliff-hanging circumstance, and then suddenly goes to a black screen. It will be interesting to see if, in the end, the chosen, Jesus clearly rises from the dead and then ascends into heaven. Or, if that's left unclear, for each of us to decide for themselves while we watch the black screen. I personally hope it's the former. But his own statements will create some doubt in my mind as to what he's really planning to do. Now, practically speaking, I do not think it's wrong for a well-grounded Christian to watch the series. Because you can discern, you can separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And it's, it's not wrong to watch The Passion of Christ, The Ten Commandments, the Jesus film, or Veggie Tales. Each has some artistic liberties involved, none, however, to the extent of the chosen. However, here's where I kind of draw the line. I would caution against setting young people in front of this without mature critical analysis present in the room. If not, they may watch and be sold along with others who are of less discernment. If there's any possibility that one could come away thinking that this is a, a representation of the true Jesus and the actual events surrounding him in the Bible, you may be planting the seeds for disappointment, misunderstanding, or doubt. Fact is that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, deity himself, but he made the exclusive claim that nobody can come to the Father except through him. And this exclusive claim is what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote in Mere Christianity, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let, not, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not, not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. A shortened version of that statement would be that Jesus either, is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. He cannot simply be a great man by his own words. Little plug here, Steve Eilf and I will be starting the mere Christ restarting the Mere Christianity's uh, Sunday School in the edition on February the 27th. So hope some of you will come back to Sunday School and get involved. So what, I'm, what we're trying to do here is just raise the caution that the chosen may be a contemporary example of attempts of the kind of inclusion that goes beyond the biblical inclusion of, of anybody's belief in God, in Jesus as their Savior. So just be cautious. So far, we've shown that God's Word is accurate and reliable, that it is not a mere resource, a, good, a set of good examples, or a guide from which you can form your own truth. Uh, we can see that we are to love and serve others as we have been loved, yet we throw away the foundation of that love and that relationship when we accept any other belief, worldview, or God figure in the name of inclusion. The Bible is the means by which the true God reveals himself to us. And if we accept it as that, what the Bible reveals is that the Father really wants a relationship with us through his son. Hosea 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, I want you to know me. Finally, the fact that the, the Almighty God of the universe has given us a way to know him through his word allows us to become more like him, even in our own admitted imperfection. If we are to become more like him and to worship him, this relational aspect of God's word reveals that he gives our lives true purpose. What is that purpose? Well, in his eternal omniscience, the father knew his people in advance and chose them to become like his son. In Romans 8, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Even though sin fractured our relationship with the Father, the sacrifice of Christ allows us to be adopted into his family. Therefore, our God-likeness is restored, and we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 3. As we become more like God, we bring glory to him as we display his character and nature. 
Ephesians 1 tells us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Some versions say, and this gave him great pleasure. So the incarnation was God's physical revelation of his desire for us to know and to become more like him. The Bible, however, is his written revelation that provides a description of that image, what we are to become more like. So, what do we say here at Lion and Lamb? We should read your Bible, yes, and take it seriously so that you can know him, become more like him. This is how we can bear the fruit of his nature, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, uh, God gave us his word in the forms of both Jesus and the scriptures, but that's not all. The Father gave his children his Holy Spirit to help us understand his word. 1 Corinthians 2. For, though, for, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Jesus affirmed this in John 14. He said, I will ask the Father... He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that God has given us his word and his spirit so that we can know him. So yes, read your Bible. Don't read it simply to learn rules or to gain inspiration or as a self-help manual so you can find your own version of the truth or try to live a good life. Rather, read it to get to know him, have a genuine relationship with him, and become more like Jesus. This is what happens when we have a true and clear view of the Father and the Son, and we learn of his ways through his word guided by his spirit. Second Peter 1 states, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may be more like him. Now, it is this relationship that young people need in order to accept faith being passed down. However, there's another area for caution here that should cause us to rethink our culture and how we approach the young. Now, 
we're coming to the end here, but listen to this and try to understand what I'm saying here. Uh, one of the phrases that we've all heard and agree with is that Christianity is not just another religion, it's a relationship. Now, the term personal, or the phrase personal relationship with Jesus is, of course, an important part of the core of Christianity. Many of the young initially misunderstand the Christian faith either as just another religion or a set of moral behaviors, and consistently articulating the relational aspect of following Jesus reinforces the true nature of Christianity and the core of the gospel. In recent times, however, cultural practices have diluted the concept of personal relationship uh, in the view of some. You know, teens have numerous personal relationships and they're not all particularly healthy. Adolescents may have a contentious or a broken relationship with their parents or their siblings. Betrayal, competitiveness, and comparison might mark their relationship with peers, especially on social media. Relationships with teachers and coaches may involve pressure, uh, criticism, and performance. And by virtue of the difficult nature of adolescent social lives, many kids have mixed or conflicted associations when they hear the term personal relationships. And then also, given the rise of technology and social media, postmodern kids may have an underdeveloped paradigm for personal relationships. Think about this. The majority of their communication occurs in electronic form. Texting, I don't know if anybody uses email, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, GroupMe, whatever. When they hear personal relationship, then what they perceive is actually rather impersonal. Even the concept of being a friend has been reduced to a click on the screen and is often more used as a verb than a noun. So what they hear may not match what our intention is to communicate to them. So we may want to consider describing our relationship with Jesus uh, in terms of oneness or union with Christ, which is not a concept or doctrine that we talk much about in the church. Paul's letter mentions this doctrine of union with Christ nearly 200 times, using terms like in Christ, with Christ, through Christ. Jesus also describes this reality. He says in John 14, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In simple terms, union with Christ captures a mysterious reality that Christ dwells in the heart of believers, and believers simultaneously dwell in the heart of Christ. Thus, we have oneness or unity with Him. So, practically speaking, in talking, talking to mature students about our relationship with Christ, it may be more effective to use statements like this. You know, Christ dwells in your heart. You aren't just close to Jesus, you are one with him. You know, you're never going to find the intimacy you seek until you find the thing for which God made you. For Christ to dwell in your heart and you to dwell in his. You know, if you're a Christian, you're already married to Jesus. As a husband and a wife are intended to become one, you now are one with Christ as he dwells in you and you in him. So certainly, 
Such terminology is kind of complex. It's kind of deep. It's kind of a mystery. So very young teens, in particular, will often struggle to understand that level of abstraction. However, this language carries far more emotional power and biblical force than simply saying you have a personal relationship with Jesus. So, to wrap up, I think it's on your sheet, but um, here's some reasons to make union with Christ the primary way that we describe the relationship that we have to, with Jesus, at least to teens who are mature enough to understand. First of all, it taps into a deep level of intimacy that young people desire. They prioritize relationships or friendships, and they live on their phones because they have a deep, God-given longing for a connection. Unfortunately, some teens often seek that connection in the wrong places, whether through sexual activity or destructive activity like with gangs. A personal relationship doesn't connote the same level of closeness and intimacy with Christ as Christ dwelling in their soul and vice versa. Secondly, uh, this concept contrasts starkly with the other relationships teens have had. Speaking in this terms prevents the student from associating their relationship with Jesus with mere human relations. In other words, we are more than best buds with Jesus. We are one with him. By talking about union with Christ, then we can produce for students an entirely new and unique category that surpasses any other relationship they'll ever know. And finally, uh, this concept serves as a theological foundation for many other vital concepts. So when we're teaching the young about marriage and sex, we start with the union of Christ as the doctrinal basis for God's design and boundaries in those areas. In helping the young to understand the relevance of what we do in church, union with Christ becomes an essential element in helping them understand the function and the purpose of worship and teaching and discipleship and ministry and baptism and as we'll celebrate today, the Lord's table. So learning and teaching more about this critical doctrine will help us all better understand the rich intimacy we enjoy with God in, with, and through Christ. Well, as the worship team comes up, uh, Emily, do we have that on an overhead? Very good, thank you. They, I didn't get it to them until the last minute, so they got it up. So if you'll rise, this is out of John 14. All right. Together, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him.